Hey everyone, welcome to Lost Mind FM. I'm Mark from WP Mayor and WP RSS Aggregator. And this week we have with us Joe Casabona. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey Mark, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. You're welcome. So I came across Joe the first time a few years ago, actually, uh, when I was going through some posts from Chris Lemmer as well. Basically, I've been following your work. And recently we got in touch over some tutorial video ideas and basically got in touch on the post status Slack channels. And we've been discussing a few things and I got to know what he's up to right now. And the idea here is to get to know Joe a little better and to understand his transition from working for a company, which was crowd favorite, and switching to basically freelancing, doing podcasts, courses, and a few more things which we'll discuss. So Joe, first of all, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am uh, a front-end developer and online educator. I guess mostly that's what I do these days. I live in southeastern Pennsylvania, close to Philadelphia, but I'm from New York. I've been working with WordPress for, gosh, I guess uh, 14 or so years now. I started in like 2004, like shortly after it came out. So, um, And aside from that stuff, you know, I enjoy smoking cigars and, and Disney, maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you get started in WordPress in the first place? Yeah. So when I was a freshman in college, I had just learned basically PHP and I had been making websites for a few years before that. And I said to my friend, hey, I think I'm going to make like a way for my clients to manage their own content, like a content management system. And I had no idea what actually had to go into that. My friend said, have you heard of WordPress? And I was like, no. So. I looked at it, I downloaded it. Now, this was before WordPress had like custom post types or pages or like a reasonable templating system. It was just a straight up blogging system at that point. But, you know, I, it was the early days. So I like hacked around in it and I put up some PHP pages and like called content from like blog areas. And that's how I first started with WordPress. And that was 2004. And in 2007, after Pages came out, I essentially moved all of my client websites to WordPress. All right. So while you were in college, you were already working on client sites? Yeah. So my first client site was also my first website. My church came to me when I was like 14 or 15, probably like 15. And they said, uh, hey, you're good with computers. Can you make us a website? And I said, oh, no, I don't know how to do that. And they said, we'll pay you. And I was like, yeah, OK, I will make you a website. <laughs> um, so like I downloaded Microsoft front page and I made my first website and I basically like would do something in the editor and then I would look at the HTML and that's how I learned HTML basically was just doing something WYSIWYG and then seeing what it generated. So, so there's a trial in there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> this was before the days of, you know, like code pen or reasonable CSS, like CSS was pretty much still in line at that point. So. <laughs> All right. So what, what came next after that? So after that, I realized that I, first of all, I, I was always into computers, but I really enjoyed making websites because it was like logical, but also creative. And I kind of straddle that line a little bit more logic than creative. But I was like, so this is fun and people are willing to pay me to also do it. And that was like baffling to me. Like people are willing to pay me for something I like. This is crazy. So I made up like pretty cheap business cards and I reached out to all of my friends and I was like, hey, if your parents need like websites for their business or whatever, let me know. And I started making websites at like two to five hundred bucks a pop. 
and I was doing pretty well. I also like found a pretty good niche with high school bands. Uh, again, this was like before MySpace really took off. So uh, I made a bunch of websites for like people I went to high school with for their bands so they could do like live shows. Oh, cool. All right. So you found your own niche to work in the school. Yeah. Yep. And I continued that through college. So I've been freelancing for over half of my life at this point, which is crazy. Cool. So crowd favorite, how did that come about? So I followed crowd favorite really closely. I, I followed Alex King basically from the moment I got into WordPress, like Alex King and, and Dan Cederholm of like simplebits.com. Those were like the two biggest influencers in my web design career. So anytime Alex did something on the web, I like followed it closely. And like one of my websites was very clearly a copy of what he did. Um, <laughs> and so when he launched Crowd Favorite, I followed closely. And, and anytime there was a job opening, I would see if it was remote because he was based in, in Denver or near Denver. Mm -hmm. And then one day I saw, hey, Crowd favorite is hiring a remote developer. And this was after Kareem had bought it and Chris Lemma got involved in it. And I had known Chris from WordCamps sharing cigars. We Chris and I first <laughs> met at um at Pressnomics 2. We had cigars and then we met again at uh WordCamp Phoenix a few months later and I supplied the cigars <laughs> that time and so we got to know each other that way and I applied and he messaged me and he he said, hey, did you did you apply to crowd favorite? And I said, yeah. And he goes, OK, let me circle back. And then I got a call from Kareem like <laughs> shortly after. And we had like an interview at WordCamp Chicago. That was 2014. And so I had always been a big fan of crowd favorite. And thanks to the networking and the connections I made at other WordCamps, you know, I was able to get a job that I was really worried I was actually qualified for. But it turns out I, I did. I did pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it actually shows the value of uh, getting involved in the community, WordCamps and whatever it is. Absolutely. I tell people all the time that I wouldn't have had that job and that experience and I wouldn't be where I am today without WordCamps or without cigars, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only, I think the only photos I've seen of you and Chris Lemo together are cigars on hand and that's it. <laughs> yeah. those, are, those are the best pictures of us. <laughs> You mentioned that you started working remote right away. Had you opted to work in an office before? Or was it just you, you wanted to work remote? Yeah, so I went to the University of Scranton for undergrad and grad school. I went to grad school basically because I thought I could get two more years of a good education for free, but also it would give me time to grow my business. And so the game plan after college was start my own business. I did that relatively successfully for a little while. And then when it came time to uh, here in the United States, you can stay on your parents' health care plan until you're like 26. And I was like 25 and I was not making enough money really to have my own health care plan through my business. So that's when I sought a job at the University of Scranton and I was already teaching there part time, but they had an opening in their IT department. So I did work in an office for about three years before going to Crowd Favorite. But when I was looking for a new job, WordPress involvement and like doing like really cutting edge stuff was the first criteria. And remote was an absolute requirement because um, my girlfriend, now my wife at the time, was also looking for jobs. And I wanted to have the flexibility uh, to have a secure job and then move wherever her job took her. So 
uh, remote was pretty important to me at that time. All right. And we're lucky enough that most of the community is now basically accepting remote work. I mean, our team is entirely remote. No one needs to be in one particular place. Yeah. So I got into CrowdFavorite shortly after the, the kind of merger between Kareem's company, Velo Media, and CrowdFavorite. And so it was about half remote, half Denver office. But by the time I left, we were a fully remote company. Cool. All right. So since you work mostly remote, what challenges have you seen working remotely in comparison to working in an office? I mean, I'm an extrovert, so it gets pretty lonely sometimes. You know, if it's just me in my office, I really value the mastermind group that I'm a part of because I get to see people. But it's it's not really the same as kind of commiserating with people in an office and like just like knocking on someone's door and saying, hey, you want to go grab a cup of coffee or you want to go grab lunch? So I think that's the biggest challenge for me. And the other challenge is, well, I I have an 11 month year old. Uh, year old, an 11 month <laughs> old daughter um and you know we have a babysitter but i'm still here so when she cries i have to like fight the urge to go <laughs> comfort her i have to let the babysitter do her job so that's the other really big challenge for me but i mean i've been working out of my bedroom since i was a kid so as far as like finding motivation to work that's not really that's not really hard for me it's the interpersonal connections and the child distraction yeah, distinguishing between home and work is definitely one of the hardest things when you're working from home. Yeah, absolutely. And and like finally, like after years, I finally have a dedicated office. You know, it used to be like half bedroom, half office. And then when we moved, I was like, I need my own space. So brilliant. Yeah, you definitely need that. All right. So you worked with Crowd Favorites, you worked in an office, and now you're working completely freelance. We'll go over what projects you're working on and, and all the aspects of those. But what challenges have you faced in making a transition from being employed at the company and having that sort of security to being freelancer and being all out on your own? Yeah, that's a a big concern of anybody, right? Who's thinking about making the leap. And I got to tell you, I don't think my timing was amazing for this because I had a three-month-old when I went full-time self-employed. All right. So like right after college, I was still living with my parents. I didn't have any real expenses there was very little risk for me to go just work for myself. Now, you know, the risk of not having health insurance, which was my big thing for getting a job, uh, that risk went away because my wife is employed at a hospital. So we're on her benefits. But, you know, there's a lot more at stake. I have a rent to pay. I have a baby to take care of. Leaving my job, I essentially cut our household income in, in more than half. So, recuperating that income was very important to me. Uh, You know, I I had a savings. I had about six months runway for income. And I said, you know, if if this dries up by December, uh, I'm I'm going to look for another job again because I have to support my family. Mm -hmm. The main driver, however, for me uh, going out on my own own was to spend time with my family. Um, uh, Crowd Favorite is an absolute amazing place to work. I Again, I would not know what I know today. I wouldn't be where I am today without my experience there. But it's an agency. And there are certain things that come along with agency life. And I had no misconceptions about that. Like Kareem uh, made it really clear before he hired me. He goes, just so you know, you know, agency life might be different than working in higher ed where it's really slow. Um, <laughs> and And so I wanted that. I loved that. But when it came time 
you know, when it came time for me to go back to work after the baby was born, I realized that balancing agency life with my side projects with a, a new baby in the house was difficult, near impossible. So I, I made some decisions there. And so making the decision was I want to spend time with my family. Being self-employed will give me the freedom to do that. Let me talk to some people to make sure I have enough income in place uh, to at least get me to a point where I'm like fully operational in six months or so. Right. So did you have things sort of planned out already once before you decided to actually switch to freelance? Did you have the ideas of the podcast and the coaching program and everything in mind? Well, so my podcast and my online courses had already launched at that point. I was still freelancing on the side. Any full-time job I'd ever taken, I made sure that it was okay for me to do side work. And there's like a lot of debate around that. You know, some people see it as maybe a dedication thing. Uh, for me, it's web design is my hobby too. So um, the, the side work is an outlet for the stuff I wasn't doing during my day job. And I and so it's not that I wasn't dedicated to my job. My side projects took back seat to my full-time job when they had to. But um, but anyway, my side projects were already kind of up and running. So uh, yeah, I made a plan. You know, I'm going to release these courses. I can make this much money from sponsorships. I can continue to take on freelance work. I talked to a few people. You know, I did a couple of courses for WP 101 uh, that helps generate some income. Uh, and then the coaching program and a couple of things like that came out of the summer slump, I guess. Uh, again, I, I picked a bad time, I think, to go <laughs> full-time freelance because the summer is notoriously slow for most small business owners. And I went out in the summer. So I cut off my full-time income. And then it was slow for the summer and like uh, both of our car inspections were up at the same time. So we had to do like car work. <laughs> and so I started to panic a little bit in August and I came up with a, a few things that not like get rich quick, but things that I could offer that could help kind of get me to the next step. That's where the coaching program came out of. And luckily I had a few people sign up. And so like through October, like to get me through the summer and by October, things were going very well, and, and, and now things are going great. And I, I have some safeguards in place for that summer slump now. Cool. All right. So you had tri trial by fire, basically, to get started. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and I got to thank my wife. She's been so supportive. You know, people tell her not everybody would be as forgiving and as supportive, <laughs> yeah. especially with a baby in the house. So, <laughs> Yeah, definitely a tough time. I'm glad to see that things are actually working out. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You mentioned the idea of side projects alongside a full-time job. This is something we also face internally ourselves. It's something I've tried before and I'm, I'm basically shifting out of it myself. I think my biggest concern with that was the dedication of time and the actual having to think about different projects. So in my role, I'm more of a project manager over all our products and the blog. So you're constantly thinking about a number of things at once. Having a side project, even if you dedicate it, dedicate time to it only on the weekends, you're still mentally going through that. Did you face that problem when you when you still worked at Crowd Favorites and had side projects? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, luckily, you know, I I had some flexibility at Crowd Favorite. It was very much like a as long as you get your work done and you're not like taking clients from us, mm -hmm. which I would never do. Um, which I mean, it, totally different clients anyway. 
but I certainly did have that distraction. And that was another thing that became, it's not something I realized while working the full-time job, but it became abundantly clear after I went out on my own that if I wanted to run these things properly, the podcast, the online courses, especially selling a product, uh, which I had never done, that is a full-time job. So I don't think it was a massive distraction from my full-time job, but I also wasn't running it like to its full potential. I was just kind of releasing things and however they did, they did. So, you know, I think it was, it, it was a trade-off. I was definitely choosing my full-time job as I felt I should have. And, you know, the side projects suffered a little bit, even though I didn't realize it at the time. I was just like, well, this is making extra money for me. So this is fine. All right. So basically you treated, you treated it as a hobby that got you some extra income anyway. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, when I started them, I, I I felt I would be at crowd favorite longer. But as I'm sure a lot of new parents will tell you, having a kid changes everything. So, <laughs> All right. So let's, let's get into basically what you're doing now. So one of the things you're doing is a podcast called How I Built It, where basically you interview different product owners and developers to get their perspective on their products and how they've developed them. This is actually one of the ways that I got more into what you are doing. And I followed a few episodes and there's a few more I still want to listen to. So you are 67 episodes into the podcast for us from your website. So what are the key points that you can take away from having spoken to all these plugin developers, team developers, service creators? It's been a great journey for me, I think. I started the podcast basically because I was having these conversations in private. I was talking to people about, hey, how did you do this? Why did you build it that way? And I thought it would be good for the public forum. Uh, So my big takeaways from a lot of these entrepreneurs in the WordPress space, programmers, marketers, business owners, a lot of them will say, I was scratching my own itch. I, I needed this, and so I built it, and then I decided to sell it. That by far has been, I think, the most common answer I've gotten. And I think it could be argued now in one of my recent episodes with Blair Williams from MemberPress. I think it could probably be argued that it's a lot harder to do that in 2018 than it was in 2011, let's say. But scratch your own itch is a a common anthem on how I built it. So, um, you know, I think if you decide that you need something, build it and see how it goes, you know. Uh, don't don't dedicate a whole lot of time to it. Maybe make an MVP, which is another uh, good takeaway I've gotten from the podcast. You know, if you spend a year on this project and you have no idea if it's viable, you're now emotionally attached to it. You've sunk all these hours into it, but it, it might not be worth doing. So do something small and release it and see see how well people do. Or uh, Or even more than that, start a blog and just talk about the general subject matter because uh, you build up a following with that blog and then you can get an I- a good idea for the market. So I think those three tips have been big drivers of my own businesses. Uh, those are the things that I've taken away most and have started to apply to what I'm doing. Yeah. And that's actually very interesting because that's basically how our business came about before I was even involved. So the same thing, John Galia had started WP Mayor's his own blog, document his own things, kept growing from there. 
the plugin WPRSS aggregator started off as a personal project for himself. People wanted it from his website and they ended up putting it on WordPress.org and it turned into premium add-ons. And if it wasn't for that, basically we wouldn't be here today. It was all thanks to that progress. And as you said, using your blog to get to know the market and get to know the people around it, uh, that's definitely a very valid point and something that anyone, I encourage anyone to do basically. Uh, the more content you can put out there, the better it is. Absolutely. And I think that was maybe the the big mistake or the blind spot that I had when doing the side project with a full-time job is I was just putting stuff out there because I thought, oh, this is probably something people want. But since going out full-time on my own, I've really taken that lesson to heart. And I'm like, all right, establish myself as an authority somehow. Make it easier for me to cross or upsell by capturing the right information about my customers and understanding what my customers actually want. Yeah, exactly. All right, so besides these three points, have you seen a shift in the way the products are built in terms of development, in terms of uh, the teams, whether they're remote or they're in an office or anything like that? Have you seen a shift since you started the podcast to now? Yeah, I think there's been a, a pretty big shift in a few ways. I always like to ask, how did you build that? Because I get a million different answers, right? I'll get uh, Yoast, for example. Yoast Devok was one of my earlier guests. And he talked about the importance of having automated testing tools and, and deployment testing tools and, and these things because his plugin is run on millions of sites. Mm -hmm. So those tools and, and the build scripts and things like that have been very important to him. On the flip side, Pippin Williamson takes an approach that I much more prefer, right? Uh, he says that if he dropped his laptop in a lake, he wants to be able to, to get a new computer and be up and running in an hour. So he keeps his development mm -hmm. tools really light. But you are seeing a shift more to these build tools, like Webpack, I guess, is probably the most popular one now because yeah. that's associated with React. But when I, <laughs> when I first started, it was grunt or gulp or <laughs> you know webpack maybe but angular was also a thing uh, so those tools are changing all the time i think there's been a, a bigger focus on automated testing tools uh, daniel bachuber talked about how important they are to him too uh, so so things like that and then i think the other big shift has been i talked to a lot of people who got into wordpress early uh, jason coleman from uh, paid memberships pro was one of the first membership plugins out there. He was able to build, you know, build his plugin and start selling it. And then he got involved in the community and, and, and became more deeply embedded. But you see a lot of these stories like, oh, I just built my plugin and people started buying it. That's not really the case anymore. It's a pretty saturated market. You have to fight for your for your customers. Um, so I think that's been a monumental shift from earlier guests or guests who got their start earlier, but even from like 2016 when I started the podcast to now, uh, there's been a, a, a big shift in how people are marketing or the fact that people are actually marketing. Yeah, that's the thing. I think now there's an actual need to market and to compete against someone rather than to find something. I think there's, there's barely any niches left where you wouldn't find something available. Right, right. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are, but it's it's a difficult find. And as you said, it's mostly out of your own need. So you must really need this to figure out, listen, there's nothing for it. 
There's nothing available for it. Right, right. And, you know, people will still, oh, I can build this. I don't have to pay for it. Like, that's still very much a mindset among developers. But, you know, it used to be, oh, this doesn't exist, so I'm going to build it and then also sell it to, to other people who need it and it doesn't exist. Yeah. But, yeah, so the shift has been big there. And now, Marcus, like it said, so we know that it's more of a focus on how to market the product now, how to compete with whatever else is out there. What have you learned from at least the most recent episodes about how uh, developers and owners are marketing their products? What channels do they use and everything like that? Yeah, so talking to a bunch of people, uh, you know, Facebook has been big for them. A lot of people will say Facebook is kind of a necessary evil because they can build an amazing community with Facebook, but they don't necessarily want to have their support channel through Facebook. Mm -hmm. So you mean Facebook groups, not Facebook advertising? Yeah, that's exactly right. As far as Facebook advertising goes, retargeting is something that's come up a lot mm -hmm. for me. It's, it's My podcast is basically how I learned about it. Because again, I, I've always taken a very like field of dreams approach to marketing. Like if I build it, they will come, which has worked out for me in selling websites, like selling services. Selling products is a whole other ballgame. So um retargeting specifically when it comes to actual marketing uh, has been really important to a lot of my guests that and understanding user intent, right? So I was using MailChimp for a long time. MailChimp is a great product. MailChimp doesn't tell you a lot about your customers. I learned from a lot of my guests like Chris, Aaron Flynn, that ConvertKit is a great tool for getting to know your customers. When they click on a link, you tag them a certain way. And then you can market to them differently. So I'm not just spamming my whole list with every course I put out. I'm sending out a notification saying, hey, you bought my Beaver Builder course. Maybe you'll like my Beaver Themer course too. Uh, it's a lot targeted. It feels a lot more personal that way too. So definitely understanding audience and customers and very focused marketing, right? Like the scattershot marketing, like the golden age of, of, TV, right? Where you can like have a, t a TV advertisement mm -hmm. and it just worked. Like that's over now. We're so inundated with advertisements that we need something that will connect with us on a more personal level. Yeah. And nowadays, even with email newsletters and all this, people are so used to receiving those. And most of the time, if it's just a generic email with a new product, you're going to skip along. And even we do it. Right. Or even worse, get an unsubscribe, right? Like exactly. maybe not even worse, you know, with ConvertKit like, or with these services you pay per subscriber. Mm -hmm. I'm happy when somebody unsubscribes because I don't want to pay for them if they're not going to buy my products. <laughs> but I mean, the point is you want to be pushing out good content on all the channels and your newsletter is not just a, it's not a circular, right? It's mm -hmm. not, it's not something that you get sent in the mail. It says we're having a big sale. It's another place to form a real bond with your customers. And then maybe after a couple of dozen newsletters say, hey, I've noticed that you've liked these things I've written about. Here's a product that you'll definitely like. Yeah. And targeting is actually a very valid point here. Something I want to look into more myself as well. So you mentioned that they're using Facebook advertising with retargeting. Yes. Yep. All right. And that's actually doing well. I get a lot of it depends. The best advice I've gotten for... Facebook retargeting is, uh, first of all, put the Facebook pixel on your website, even if you're not going to use Facebook ads, because you still get to learn about your audience, right? I understand 
who's hitting my website now uh, because of the Facebook pixel. So even if I never put another ad on my website uh, or for my, my courses or anything, I still understand that audience better. I know who they like on Facebook. I know what they're buying and stuff like that. But the best advice I've gotten came from a mashup, but Syed uh, Balki is the one who comes to mind most. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, put the Facebook pixel on your website for three months and don't do anything with it because that is how Facebook will understand who's visiting your website. Then another piece of advice from another friend of mine was when you do a Facebook ad, offer a free thing that collects an email address or it has to be a good enough sale, right? And and that's why the three month minimum is important, right? Because maybe people are coming to your website regularly to see what you have to say, to see what you're selling, but they haven't taken that extra step yet. The The free giveaway, like the content upgrade for an email address is a really effective Facebook retarget, I've heard. It doesn't cost the user anything and you get an email address and you have the intent attached to that email address. You know where the person mm-hmm. came from, you know what they picked up, and you know how to effectively market to them now. All right. Good to know. Uh, this is something we thought of ourselves for subscriptions on our websites. But it's good to say that it actually works well through Facebook advertising as well. Facebook Pixel is a good idea. Do you see that as more important than or equally important as Google Analytics in finding out about your customers? I think they're both very important. I've used the Facebook Pixel, I think, a little bit more. But that's, I mean, I'm not really a marketer. I I only understand Google Analytics superficially. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that they have those intents, but I actually have um, intents and actions set up with the Facebook Pixel. So, you know, the Facebook Pixel will will trigger if somebody clicks on uh, the shopping cart, if somebody makes it to the checkout page, and if somebody purchases. I have not set those up with Google Analytics, but I, I believe you can. So I think it really depends on what tool you're most comfortable with. The Facebook Pixel has been more helpful to me just because I've gotten a, a better crash course on that. And I've been on Google Analytics so long that to me, it, it was always more of a hit counter, like a visit <laughs> counter for, for yeah. me. So. All right, cool. I think it all depends on your audience as well, just with what we mentioned earlier. I mean, if your audience is a younger generation, you know you're going to have better luck with Facebook to get to know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we've mentioned the product development and marketing it. Now, something that I like to focus on a lot, and that's what we discussed in our previous episode with Shep Hyken, is customer service, basically providing support for your product. Have any of the plugin owners and developers mentioned this, and what do what approach do they take towards providing support? So the best episode on support to date has come from the Give w, uh, the Give people, uh, mm-hmm. GiveWP.com. They talk about how instrumental support has been and having a good support system in place because not only are they helping their customers, right, which, is, which are keeping their customers on their platform, but they're learning what their customers do the most. They're learning the feature requests that their customers need. And there's an open dialogue between the support team and the development team to make the product better, more intuitive, better features or better add-ons and things like that. So the GiveWP team has, or the Give team, has an excellent support stack in place. But other guests have talked about it too. Scott Bollinger has talked about the importance of listening to his customers and uh, understanding, you know, what they want because you're 
the people who have, who have given you money are invested in your product now. Mm-hmm. So you want to make it better for them, but you also want to make sure that they're going to keep being a customer of yours. Uh, I've been told lots of times since I've gone out on my own that it's a lot easier to sell to somebody who has already given you money than to brand new customers. So yeah, precisely. Yeah. So good support there is it's almost it's almost like sales, right? You're selling to your current customers. And so, you know, Scott, again, Scott Ballinger has mentioned that Justin Ferriman has mentioned that to an extent. But the, the I think the the best advice about support has come from the give team because they have analyzed and, and put a bunch of tools in place to really make their support like a tightly run ship. So have you discussed it with them on a, on a podcast episode on how I built it? Yes. Yeah, right. I think it's in I think it's in the fifties. I think that episode's in the fifties. Right. So we'll find it and first of all I'll listen to it. I'm gonna put it in the show notes so everyone can listen to it as well. But yeah, as you said, it's important to focus on the customers you have. It's something we mentioned in the previous episode as well with, with Shep. So Shep Hikens, a customer service expert in the US as well. He walked walked me through quite a few different areas of support and this was one of them. So basically provide the best support you can. And you have a better chance of getting the same customer back than finding a new one. And it always costs you less anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about the positive stuff. Now, what problems have plugin owners or team owners and developers found within the WordPress space when it comes to development, when it comes to marketing it? Or is there, is there anything that pops out? Yes. So what troubles have they had? That's a really good question, right? Because I mean, with... The GPL can be really tough to work within, especially if you're trying to turn a profit. And so you'll run into these websites that take your plugin and then sell it for five bucks on their site. Uh, and there, there's no support cost to them. But there is an interesting mindset that I've kind of heard echo throughout the open source space that, you know, things should be free. Uh, you see that on Android too, right? If you're an Android user, Uh, Or if you're a developer, you're more likely to develop for iOS than Android because people on iOS are willing to pay. People on Android are less willing to pay because Mm -hmm. Android's an open source ecosystem. So uh, finding the right kind of people to market to uh, can be a challenge sometimes. Developers, uh, I feel, have been the most common target. You know, it's uh, I'm going to market my tool to developers or freelancers who in turn can resell it to their customers. But again, you know, if you have a new freelancer, they're less likely to want to pay for something. So doing that kind of dance between, do I make my plugin free? Do I make it premium? Do I make it freemium? Uh, has been often discussed. Uh, I, Pippin mm-hmm. just went through this whole thing, right? I think he just changed up the model for all of his plugins, I think. Yeah, that affected us as well. So it was all third-party extensions. So we developed we developed third-party extensions for ADD, were sold on his marketplace, on their marketplace, on their site. He closed that down, same thing. So he, he's taking a different approach. So everything that was previously developed by third parties either either bought out by them, either discontinued, or like we were doing with ADD bookings, um, basically it's taken over by the developer and everything's handled by them, sales and everything. Gotcha. Yeah. So he, I mean, and he's like, Pippin is a masterclass in this sort of thing. Cause he's got three products with essentially three different models, right? Affiliate mm-hmm. WP. He, he offers a lifetime license for because support's relatively low for that after the initial buy EDD and RCP, those might be higher for support. So he's going to have annual subscriptions in place. 
Uh, Sean Hesketh recently did something very similar with WP101, where he took away the lifetime option because the lifetime option is a run on your resources, essentially. So, you know, kind of trying to find that balancing act has been very tough in the WordPress space between finding the right customers, marketing to them, and making your business profitable, right? It's not it's not like a greed thing. It's a, mm-hmm. if I have a thousand customers, 999 of them need support every day. I'm not profitable. I need to figure out a way to become profitable. Yeah. So um, it's a tough balancing act. Yeah, and that's something I think we need to get out of in the WordPress space because WordPress is seen as a free solution. And that has had a negative impact, I think, on any plugin, plugin owners, team owners, everything. People want things for free. They have to understand that if you want it for free, there's not going to be a possibility of the guys to maintain it, to update it, to provide support for it. I mean, if our plugins were all free and we got no money out of it, we would have stopped years ago. There was someone who actually tried, tried to compete who forked uh, WPR segregator a few years ago. It went for free on WordPress.org. At that time, it had less features than it does now, much less. But still, it spent a short while and it was gone. He couldn't support it. I mean, it takes a team behind every product. So if you really believe a product in the product and you want to use the product, then support it. Absolutely. And, and you know, you hear this echoed a lot too, but the, the free customers are also the most demanding ones, right? It's, mm-hmm. I tell people this who are thinking about freelancing too. Like if you're going to do a free project, you need to be very clear at the beginning that, hey, I'm going to do your project when I can get to it. These are the parameters of the project because somebody will walk all over you. You know, somebody was like, help me set up my blog. Uh, it took like two hours. I sat with them and showed them how to do it. And they're like, wow, I would have never been able to do that on my own. And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, that's why people pay me thousands of dollars to do it. <laughs> and I just gave it to you for free. Like, I hope you understand the value that I just gave you. So, you know, it's the same with, with plugins and support. If it's worth something, especially to your business, then it's definitely worth paying for it. That's a hard lesson that I've learned <laughs> over 15 years. But now that I'm in it full time, I'd much rather pay for something that will save me 50 hours than spending 50 hours that I could be spent growing my business. Exactly. That's the thing. Perfectly put. All right. So last thing about the podcast, about what he learned from the guys themselves. Are there any interesting or funny stories that come to mind from any episodes? Hmm. Let's see. I, I, I try not to edit a lot out, but uh, I mean, something really funny that like totally stopped the flow of the show because I just like lost it was during, I think I edited this out because it was like kind of a long bit and I try to keep my, right. uh, my episodes to a certain length, but like, Daniel Bachuber was talking about how he like just moved into a new office. Now he was like hanging up pictures and in his office and things like that. And like, I feel like this might be in my head now, but I feel like as he was saying it, like a picture just fell off the wall and made like a huge (laughs) clack. And he's like, you know, he like cursed and he's like, I just did this. And I like, I just totally broke. Like that was funny. Like that's like, I feel like that's pretty good B roll. And I think my most fun episode to date has been with Tracy Levesque of Yikes. She kicked off season three and, um, you know, I mean, I know her from the Philadelphia community and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, but we, it was just a really fun conversation. We talked about like kids and balancing business with kids and how I met your mother uh, and like the mummers parade, which is something that I recently learned about because I'm here in Philadelphia. It's super weird. It was very tangential, but it was a lot of fun for both of us at least. So I I really enjoyed that conversation. Brilliant. I think that this is one of the benefits of, 
being able to get onto a podcast like this. You get to speak to people and it's it's different to meet someone from a completely different area that you are. Now in this case it was a similar area in Philadelphia. But speaking for myself, we live on a tiny island called Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh you basically need to fly everywhere you want to go. So for me to be able to speak to you, to speak to anyone else, but the podcast is a brilliant platform to do that. So if anyone has the chance of creating a podcast for themselves, it's definitely something they should do. And actually, I follow a few people on YouTube as well, and everyone seems to be going into podcasts. Seems to be growing substantially. Yeah. So it's definitely a good a good viable route to take. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just a call back to earlier when we were talking about like working from home. Uh, I try to record a lot of my episodes like within the same week, so I can then schedule them out. And mm-hmm. I really look forward to those weeks because it's like draining by the end, but I get to. I get to talk to a lot of people about their passion. So it's, it's definitely a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's maybe the most fun I'm having as, as a self-employed <laughs> freelance person. Brilliant. So we've spoke about who you interviewed on the podcast, but what about running the podcast itself? So as someone who decided to start a podcast and everything, first of all, how did you decide to start the podcast and how did you choose the topic of uh, product development and product owners? So. I started the podcast because I was having, like, I I think I said this earlier, I was Mm -hmm. having private conversations with people and I thought these would be pretty good in a public space. And I came up with the name, how I built it. I bought the domain, how I built dot it, which thanks to GoDaddy, I could buy, even though I'm not an Italian citizen yet. I can be (laughs) if I go through the paperwork because I'm a first generation Italian here in America. Um, Yeah. So, um, I originally was just going to make it like interview somebody about how they built their product. And then I could use it to cross sell my online courses, which at the time I thought would be how targeting site builders, right? So I need to build a website, a membership website. How do I do it? Well, you just learned from Jason Coleman, how he built uh, paid memberships pro come over to my website, my online courses and learn how to, build a website with paid memberships pro what i learned in that time was site builders are pretty hard to market to if it's like a free product or if there's enough free resources online right it's about defining the right audience yeah i've tweaked that a little bit but also from the very first episode i've been sponsored uh, i've had sponsors for my podcast uh, and again that's thanks to the network that i grew previously and so when i switched to a sponsorship model i really felt like I didn't feel it was right for me to be pushing my business as the sole purpose for the podcast if I was taking other people's money to help promote their business. So at that point, I decided this is just going to be a straight interview show. I'm going to talk to first just lots of people that I knew personally who I I knew would be a good draw and a, a good conversation. And then people started to reach out to me about being on the show. So it was a pretty early switch from this is going to be a podcast to help me promote my business. And I'm going to be very selective about my guests and maybe do it every two weeks Mm -hmm. to, wow, this is really popular and people are willing to pay me to keep doing it. So uh, now it's going to be a weekly interview style show. All right. So basically it turned from a sort of cross selling sort of tool to basically sort of your own mastermind in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the questions I ask is, do you have your own mastermind Mm -hmm. group or do you talk to people? Because uh, because that's kind of how it, it started. I would talk to people and we would mastermind for a little bit. And I'm like, man, I should have recorded this. 
released it. So, all right. So you said that uh, basically as the podcast grew, uh, people sort of approach you to actually be on the podcast. So it seems guests for the podcast is not a problem. As for the following, to actually get people to listen to your podcast and to continue coming back and back again, what approach have you taken towards that? Yeah, this is a great question. And a lot of people have asked me because I've seen really good growth. I hit 100,000 downloads in less than a year. I now see around 20,000 downloads per month. Nice. And I think the most important thing is consistency. I always make sure to release at 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday. Uh, So I consistently put out a show that helps people know, okay, I can expect this podcast is coming out on Tuesday, which is it's interesting because a podcast that I always listen to on Wednesday morning switch to recording on Wednesday afternoons and like it through it like I haven't listened to it in a couple of weeks just because mm-hmm. I watch my daughter on Wednesdays so we would listen to the podcast together and and now I'm like I don't know when to listen to it now you know so it's it's having a good schedule is is very important yeah I like even without that anecdote <laughs> having good content is the other thing so you know my first few guests were amazing they helped promote they were well known in the WordPress community uh, and I, I gained a good following quickly. And I never expect my guests, like I never ask my guests to promote. They're taking time out of their day to help me put on my show. Mm-hmm. But it's always great if they do promote because I'm reaching their audience. Uh, and then third is I try not to ask the same questions that they've been answering on other podcasts, right? You probably see this a lot where, you'll see the same person on a bunch of podcasts and it's the same story on every podcast. I try to differentiate a little bit. So if I know a guest has been on, let's say Carrie Dill's podcast, talking about having a contract for your business, I won't ask that guest about having a contract for their business. I'll ask about trademark and copyright law because it's a different topic uh, and it's delivering more value. So those are the three things that I would recommend if you want to try to grow your podcast. Very good. So originality has been one of your main strong points, I think. Yeah, it's uh, the feedback I've gotten from from people is is they're hearing a side of the story that they don't normally hear. Uh, I especially mm-hmm. like to ask, like, what failures you've had, mm-hmm. uh, it, like, what are the, what has been the hard part of the business? You always hear the success story, right? I mean, the Winter Olympics are on right now. <laughs> you see the gold medalist doing the amazing gold medalist thing. But you don't see that gold medalist practicing five hours a day or 10 hours a day to get to that point. So I like to talk about those points and like what made them persevere. Yeah, that's very good. At the end of the day, it's your failures that bring you to where you are today. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Final thing about the podcast. So you said people are coming to you to actually be on the podcast and whatnot. Do you still do any form of networking or anything to bring in? Was it to grow your following and to grow your popularity? Absolutely. So I still try to go to a bunch of word camps. I'm trying to go to a lot of non-word camps this year because I do want to branch out beyond the WordPress community mm-hmm. and bring different perspectives to the WordPress community, right? I don't want to abandon the WordPress community, but yeah. um, I've had a couple of people making physical products on my show this season. And that's a whole different perspective that I think 
we in, in the WordPress space can gain uh, value and perspective from. So I reach out, I'm active on Facebook groups and things like that uh, in different Slack channels, just talking to people. And while a lot of people do reach out to me to be on the show, uh, maybe one of the harder things that I've had to do is, is say, no, I don't know if you'd be a good fit or mm-hmm. I'll keep you in mind for the future, but maybe not right now. Because again, I want to do right by my listeners. Yeah. I don't want to have somebody on the show who's just going to spend the whole time selling their product. I'm not a half hour long commercial for those. Exactly. People. I still do a good bit of reaching out to people, especially because I've had a lot of white men on my show. It's people that I knew. It's the it's the majority of people who start businesses are uh, unfortunately white men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been making a concerted effort to reach out to. Like a lot of, I, I have, I think it's a 50-50 split this season on men and women. And so I've been making a concerted effort to do that uh, as well and, and bring a little bit more diversity to the show because, again, different perspectives are beneficial to everybody. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Good to know. I, I hadn't actually noticed that, so it's a, I'll keep an eye out for it. <laughs> I didn't either. Somebody pointed it out to me and I was like really bummed about it because it was like very like, why are you doing that? Like I was doing it on purpose, <laughs> but I wasn't. <laughs> but now that I'm now that I'm aware of it, I I'm you know I'm I'm making an effort to to be better. Cool. There are a lot of brilliant women in WordPress nowadays, so yeah, yeah absolutely. So yeah, yeah. You thinking of coming to WordCamp Europe this year? Or is it too far for you? When is it? I uh... like I every year I'm like I want to do it, but it like I mean last year I I had like a travel ban because I had a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So this year I'm like trying to figure out what my schedule is going to be I, every year though, like that and Miami, I'm like, I want to go to that. And then there's some other thing that I can't, I can't go to. I, I believe it's in June as far as I know. Okay. Interesting. I'll have to run it by the boss. <laughs> Getting a good trip to Europe. Yes. Yes. All right. So we have discussed the podcast and that has taken us around 50 minutes. So I hope it's been interesting for our listeners so far. We will end things here for now and continue our discussion with Joe in the next Mastermind FM episode. Be sure to tune in to learn all about how and why Joe has ventured into the world of creator courses as well as business coaching for WordPress and what these types of services can do for the WordPress community as a whole. So thank you for listening. Have a great week.